Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Welcome to this Sunday service, December 12th, 2021, the third of Advent, and another gray winter day. That is to say, in most ways, an ordinary day in a string of days in your life and mine. I wonder what you came expecting today. Anything? Did you come expecting maybe the same old, same old? Some music, some babbling from the front, a little bit of a spectacle with some raised hands. Did you come expecting a cozy Christmas message to match the Christmas lights outside? Some good fika? You will get some good fika. Did you come expecting to see God? It's a challenge many times, isn't it, to imagine God breaking through an ordinary day to understand our material experience of the world through spiritual eyes. Does God see me? Is God real? This third Advent message in our series, Anthems, um, Justin took us through expectation. Last week, Pastor Quinton talked about both preparation and proclamation. Um, And I've got to say, there's a little bit of all of the above in this one, which is on Revelation. It centers on the two final characters in Luke's Christmas story told through chapter 1 and 2 of his book. You can start to turn there, Luke chapter 2. These characters are not likely included in your, in your nativity set. You know, you've got the little figurines, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. They're likely not there. Their role is kind of quiet. It's briefly told, and it happens several weeks after the birth of Jesus. And the way Luke tells this story, it really makes me wonder about their interior lives, how they came to see God in the ordinary. And as we take some time this morning to reflect on their lives, Simeon and Anna, I pray we are stirred, we are challenged, even comforted, but perhaps not in the usual Christmas way. Are you ready? Let's dive back into the story of Christ's birth so we reorient ourselves again. We remember what's going on. Luke chapter 2, Mary, a humble young woman open to new life, has given birth to the baby, which an angel told her would be called Jesus. The angel said, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary first responded to this news with hesitant curiosity, as Justin told us in that first Advent Sunday. How can this be, she said, which became accepting obedience. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And finally, her soul praises the Lord in her beautiful anthem. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Indeed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mary embodies that. There's a sense 
in which she doesn't fully understand the significance of what God is doing, but she submits her will and her life plans to God's anyway, carrying the incarnation of his faithfulness to fruition. Now, after the birth, Mary and Joseph meticulously follow the Jewish customs of the day. They circumcise the baby on the eighth day after birth, which is also when he officially gets his name, Jesus. Pastor Quinton opened his sermon last week by reminding us of the power behind that name, the name that can become a prayer for us when we're not sure what else to pray. That name means Yahweh saves, God saves, Jesus or Yeshua. It was a fairly common name for Jews at the time. There would have been a lot of people with the same name. I think that's interesting. It's, of course, Jesus came to us like a common man. He, the, the thing that he did that not all of those other common men do, though, he would become the very thing that his name proclaimed, the revelation of God's faithfulness and salvation. But more on that later. On the 40th day after birth, so they've, they've done the the circumcision ceremony, the naming ceremony. Then on the 40th day after birth, they bring the prescribed sacrifices to the temple for the purification of Mary. Women were always rendered unclean, not sinful, unclean after birth. So they had to bring sacrifices to be purified again. They also then dedicated him to the Lord. All these rituals and sacrifices emphasized how serious a thing it was to approach God in worship. They were external actions meant to also reflect a heart and a soul prepared. It's at this point, 40 days after birth, that something curious happens. An elderly man and woman see Mary, Joseph, and the baby. Among all the other couples that have come into the temple to do the same thing, and they identify Jesus. So turn to me, Luke 2. Maybe your finger's already there. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Let's stop there. I want to back up for a minute and just remind you that this scene at the beginning of the New Testament is on the heels of 400 years of silence. We call that the intertestamental period from the time when the Old Testament, what they would have called their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, closes and our New Testament picks up is 400 years of silence from God. The Hebrew Bible ended with Chronicles. So our Christian Old Testaments end with the book of Malachi. The Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have read and studied growing up ended with 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Here's an interesting thing. In Hebrew, the last sentence of the last book of the Bible is an unfinished sentence. It's not like that in your Bible, but in the Hebrew, that's the way it is. It's, It's purposely like a dot, dot, dot. So Israelites would have been reading and studying these scriptures, they would have reached the end of this book and been like, did we lose this, the next scroll? Where's the next scroll? They didn't have books, of course. They read them in big scrolls. They would grab the next one when they needed to read the next part. Well, who's got this next scroll? Did I, I'm turning it back in, you know. 
Where's the part? Where's the part that we're all expecting that this text we've been reading is making me hope for? Where's the part where a Messiah from David's line comes back and fixes this spiritual issue we've got? We've been in exile physically, but it's also clear we are spiritually exiled. We're at home, but we're not at home, and we need God. We need a Messiah to come back and bring us home, spiritually home and physically home. So Simeon was born into this environment during this 400 years of waiting. And not just that, the scripture tells us that he was righteous and devout while waiting. He had been born into a time of silence. I can guarantee you there was some cynicism going around, hardship. There was, of course, oppression. And he managed to be born and grow up and get old in those circumstances and keep the faith and stay hopeful as opposed to getting old and bitter. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a miracle in and of itself. How many of you this morning are fighting bitterness and cynicism, disillusionment with life and what you thought it would be, who you thought you'd be, who you thought you would be doing life with? Perhaps you're even fighting disillusionment with God. My, my wonderful husband, who's with our children at home this morning, Adam, he and I met in Hong Kong about 12 years ago. Some of you know at least parts of this story. Um, wow, did we fall in love quickly, a little too quickly for our own good. While we were dating uh, in Hong Kong, he went back to Sweden while I stayed there to continue working. And the day he left... Oh my goodness, did we drag out the goodbye as long as we possibly could. (laughs) We went for pizza, and we barely ate. Um, We sobbed into our food as a bad British pop song came on that we normally would not have reacted to, uh, except to maybe make fun of. But this time, the line, goodbye, my lover, goodbye, my friend, was especially poignant. (laughs) And we sobbed harder into our pizza. Oh. I'll spare you the rest of that story, the bus to the airport, and oh, it's a mess. But to say we had put our hopes into the future idea of marriage and togetherness is an understatement. Has nine and a half years of married life in Sweden turned out to fulfill those hopes? There's the sometimes bliss of marriage, yes, And then there's the boring routines of everyday life and the exceedingly challenging task of raising children and the realizations of all the ways we disappoint each other. We didn't think that was possible back then when we were sobbing into our pizza. (laughs) But perhaps it's why a Duke University ethics professor posited that everyone marries the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. It's like no matter how right it feels at the beginning, there are always disappointments to wrestle through. We didn't appreciate then what I know very deeply now, which is that we had major brokenness. We both had screaming longings to be fulfilled and we placed them squarely and wrongly on each other's shoulders. Praise God that we have matured beyond that. Glory that we have come this far, nine and a half years, it'll be 10 next summer. 
It's not about avoiding disappointments, but it's about what you do with them when they occur. Hmm. Now, um, there's another old devout character here with Simeon, Anna the prophetess. She knew disappointment and loss. She was married for seven years and then widowed, seemingly no children. What a deep wound that would have been early in life. Let's read what Luke says about her. I'm jumping around here. We are going to get through all these verses, but I'm jumping ahead now to verse 36. There was also prophet Anna, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Uh, the, the original language there is a bit unclear. It could, be, could mean that she was 84 now or that she lived 84 years after becoming a widow, making her 104 or 5. Either way, she was very old. <clears throat> she never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Excuse me, my notes are jumping around here. <clears throat> Here's a painting, yeah, you can put that painting up, Ebby, of the prophetess Anna by Rembrandt. He actually painted multiple versions of this scene in Luke. Different aspects of the story are highlighted in each aspect of his painting. But I like this particular zoom in on Anna, reading the Torah. Now, they wouldn't have had a book, like I said. Books were not invented. She would have been reading from a scroll, but okay, Rembrandt, we'll let that one slide, I suppose. <clears throat> But I like this because it still communicates an ordinary day in Anna's life, right? I wonder how much of the Hebrew Bible she had memorized, how enmeshed she would have become with God's story, how she would have savored the promises of God she read there, like it was her food, because it was, of course, the Bible said she fasted all the time. I think about how she would have read and meditated and read and meditated on his words until those words read her, worked on her, until her perspective was turned more on God than herself and her circumstances and her loss. I'm humbled to think about how she would go to sleep and wake up another day, yet another day, like most of those days in that 400-year period of silence. Those were the majority of her days, I might add with praise still on her lips and hope in her heart. Wow. Now, I'm sure that not all of her prayers were, thank you, God, for your goodness, but also, where are you, God? I'm hurting, and my nation is hurting, and your faithful remnant is waning. You took away my husband, any hope of children and a legacy that would have also been her um, stability, her livelihood, she might have said, why am I still here? And then as she wrestled in God's house with God, maybe that question then became a statement, I am still here, you are still here. Perhaps she would pray Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. 
I'm reminded of a quote from pastor and artist Andy Squires. He says, I praise God from the altar of specific details of my pain because that is where God comforts me and confronts me with the specific details of his goodness. Luke says that Anna never left the temple. She must have taken countless details to God there to then get all caught up in the details of his goodness as he stripped back all of her false self and her ideas about life that didn't pan out. And she showed up day after day because where else would she go? Perhaps she had no choice because she lived off of money donated to her as a widow with no way to make money of her own. But perhaps she had no choice because she deeply understood that God's house was the best place to pour out her life. Of course, you and I can take our pain to any number of places. I wonder if where you take your pain reveals what you really worship. And of course, we all worship something. There was an American author, uh, his name's David Foster Wallace. He died back in 2008 at 46 years old. He was in some ways your typical tortured artist. He was brilliant. He was incredibly gifted at articulating the fault brokenness of the human experience in this beautiful but broken world. He was prone to alcohol and marijuana addiction. He was burdened with depression. You know, personalities like his seem to be more aware of their longings than some of us. Some of us have learned to quietly stuff those longings down. Personalities like his are aware of them and they're trying to fill them. Is it this? Is this going to do it? They fumble about trying most things and wrestling with the darkness and the questions. What's interesting about him is he, despite growing up with a militantly atheist father who would never let him attend church as a child, even if he was invited by a friend, he became fascinated by Christianity. He would attend church for months at a time. He was very close to becoming Catholic at one point, but he, he dipped off at the end and saying he just had too many questions still. Uh, he was moved especially by the Christian principles and people behind his Alcohol Anonymous meetings, where he went to be free from his alcohol and marijuana addictions. Sadly, he never went all the way with Jesus, and the darkness overcame him eventually. But even he recognized, as he learned in AA, that submitting your pain to anything else than God will eat you alive, in his words. In a secular commencement speech he gave to a group of university graduates in 2005, he said this, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This was in a speech to a group of secular graduates in 2005. He said, on one level, we all know this stuff already, 
The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness, remembering it day after ordinary day. Anna had done that, I think. Back to, back to Simeon now. Luke 2, verse 27. So he sees them. He sees Mary and Joseph, and now he's moved by the Spirit. He went up into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Simeon not only looked at Jesus... Right? He saw Jesus with spiritual vision, developed over a life of waiting, hopefully, and a relationship, apparently, with the Holy Spirit who was upon him. Not only did he see Jesus, he took him in his arms, truly received him. Here's a, a photo of my grandfather and my nephew, uh, Soren. Now, so this is coming shortly, a photo of a great-grandfather and a great-grandson. There's about 80 years in between them. I love it. I don't have any photos of my grandpa with my children as babies because we live too far away. He hasn't even met my, my two-year-old yet, but God willing, this week he will. So this is, this is just a few weeks ago with my brother's new baby. And I, love, I look at that look in his eyes. This is the joy of earthly great-grandparents or grandparents cradling their great-grandchild. Eighty years in between, the hope of an earthly legacy continued, and yet it's still just earthly. Imagine that feeling or that expression on my grandfather's face times infinity as Simeon receives Jesus. And this is when his song comes, his anthem He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised in verse 29, you can now dismiss your servant in peace. He's like, okay, I can die now. This was it. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. It says in verse 33, can we marvel with them for a minute? Let's do that. What is this salvation? Think of that detail of Jesus being circumcised. This isn't just an administrative, administrative detail. This is God's own son being initiated into the covenant that God himself instituted. Circumcision, it was an identity marker of this special relationship God had with the Israelites his people that he wanted to be so close to so that together they could show the world what God is like. And what is he like? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the first place in the Bible that the text spells out the character of God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He's also just. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And here he is entering the world to stand in the gap as a human on the circumcised side of this relationship. Standing in the gap, the gulf between our brokenness and his goodness. 
right? He's a God who created the world and everything in it for good and as good, and that goodness was twisted up. And now we've got bitterness, disillusionment, cynicism, disappointment, death, and yet God made us and he cannot forsake us, his beloved creation, so he comes to get us. Why doesn't he come to get us in Genesis 4, like right after everything went wrong? Right? He takes this much longer route of calling the Israelites into covenant, a covenant that only God upheld consistently and faithfully, faithfully, while, of course, God's people fail and fail and fail. But apparently, this was the necessary path, the path of pain and failure, learning to wait Growing up our souls, Pastor Quinton talked about this in his message last week, maturing us. We have to come to awareness of how just, how deep our rebelliousness and brokenness runs before we can ingest just how deep God's love for us is, just how far he will go to be with us, how gracious God is to give us time to do that. And so at just the right time, the spirit who hovered over the dark, chaotic waters in Genesis 1, at the beginning of time, overshadows Mary as she conceives his son. And then that spirit moves Simeon, leading him to Jesus. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit always does, leads people to Jesus? God's own son, circumcised as a human, standing in for us, broken and failed, without ever having failed himself. And that's the point, of course. This is the salvation. God becoming a man, to save us from ourselves so that we can be close to him forever. To defeat the powers of sin, darkness, and death. To give us a place that will quench our longings, what we were really made for. Those longings that we try to quench in a myriad of other ways, as David Foster Wallace wisely pointed out. And that salvation is personal. It's for you to take into your arms like Simeon. And it's also global. It's for you and me to spread like Anna, who in verse 38, um, the text says, gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. It's personal. It's for you to take into your arms. And it's global. It's for you and me to spread. Back up there to verse 34. Thank you, media guy. I'm I'm really jumping around. Simeon is now speaking to Mary and Joseph, and he blesses them. And then he says to Mary, the child's mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Imagine receiving that on a yay new baby card as a mother. Oh, the sweet, disruptive peace of Jesus. <clears throat> the deepest joy accompanies the deepest pain. This moment makes me think now not about an old man's awe and wonder at the presence of a baby, God's salvation, but about Mary with a crucified Jesus on her lap, depicted in Michelangelo's sculpture, La Pietà. Should be on the screen. What pain Mary endured as the mother of our Messiah, the pain of a mother that in some way at least all mothers can relate to in microcosm, the releasing of your child into the world knowing that it will hurt and break them. 
In a macro view, of course, we can't understand Mary's pain at all, but she endured it faithfully. La Pietà, in turn, makes me think about a student I once had at Lund University. I worked there for almost 10 years as a writing teacher. The student, Leila, she was a devout Muslim with a soft spot for Jesus. Muslims consider Jesus a prophet. She was an exchange student studying at the Department of Theology there, um, and I was a writing teacher, and she needed a lot of guidance with her writing. She was writing comparative theology, so we would end up talking about these passages of the Bible and the Quran that she was writing about. So she found out I was a Christian. And as part of her study in Sweden, they went on a field trip to Rome, and she saw this sculpture face to face. And when she returned to Lund and she came to me for her next writing appointment, she handed me this postcard that she bought while she was there. And with tears in her eyes, she said, there's something about Jesus. There's something about Jesus in there. I said, yeah, he wasn't just a prophet. He was God. Lord, bless Layla, wherever she is right now in the world. <clears throat> like Simeon prophesied, what you think about him reveals the truest part of you. John 1, verses 9 and 10, just sums up the nativity scene in a sentence or two here. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's his birth story. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And yet Simeon and Anna did. Simeon and Anna represented all who saw that their only hope was in the mercy and grace of God. Nothing else in this life is reliable enough, is satisfying enough. As one commentator puts it, along with the poor carpenter and his wife and the lowly shepherds, they were flesh and blood examples of those to whom Christ comes. They personify, they embody the paradox of being profoundly empty and profoundly full. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They longed for righteousness and consolation that would come only through the Messiah. They came to God's house hungry, and they received as few others in history have. But not first without a life lived counterculturally in a light of pain, silence, disappointment, both on a, a national scale and a personal scale. It was in the quiet ordinary where they had learned how to seek, how to keep the faith, how to see their own lives through the lens of God's promises that they meditated on every day. Band, you can come on back up as I come to a close. It's sometimes hard to hold this truth in our mind at the same time. <clears throat> that in our ordinary lives, God is still working. And just like Simeon and Anna saw, I want to ask you, friends, do you see it? Do you want to see it? Maybe that's the first question. Do you want to see it? Do you see your salvation and your redemption when you look at Jesus? It's both a miraculous lightning bolt and a slow slog. 
through the everyday. Maybe some, some of you are having a lightning bolt experience this morning, and praise God, that is wonderful. And some of you are maybe feeling far away from your last miraculous encounter. You've started to store up your disappointments. My challenge to you this morning is to turn that key to the dark corner of your heart where you just stuff those. Turn that key and start to give the specific details of your pain to God who chose to invade our world, to stand in on the human side of his own covenant in order to take our pain and our sin on himself. Keep the faith. Wake up another day and meditate on his word and let it read you. Let it chip away at your bitterness and your cynicism. Praise him no matter where you are. Ask him to give you eyes to see how he's forming you in your ordinary life for eternity. That is the slow path of getting old, if God gives you old age, and being full of his hope and joy at the end of it. Amen.